Get everyone, it's Wesley here from Business Blessings, and we're up to episode 18 of our Sacrificial Succession podcast. Paul, dangerous dynasties. What are we going to discuss today? <laughs> yeah, this is um, th- this is an interesting one because, um, you know, uh, it can, I think, in some cases be fairly controversial. I suppose just to a little caveat, to start with is and and I and we'll talk about it but that is there are cases where uh you know in family businesses where dinner you don't have any other option um but this is just being very mindful of the fact that sometimes dynasties are sustained and maintained for the wrong reasons so I guess it, it it's actually taking a step back and looking at this from God's perspective as well and and actually is it is it just a foregone conclusion that's going to happen or who are the right people to actually put in place well i think it depends uh very much on the project you know where we're talking about the sort of projects that we've done and perhaps you know there's other places where um you're transforming nations and you're handing over to people who are of a different ethnic group to yours um well, you can't consider family members because if you do, by default, you are being uh, discriminating against the nation that you want to transform. So, you know, these are factors that just have to be considered. Um, And I think sometimes, certainly from my experience, seeing a lot of uh, dynastic relationships and that they're not always family in the sense of bloodlines they often are um, but you can find dynastic relationships in professions even where people won't choose outside of their profession and they maintain the the, the professional dynasty and that may not be right you know that may not be the right choice um, so there's a lot of dynasties the, the best known ones, of course, are family. Um, but uh, yeah, wherever there is favoritism shown for the wrong reasons, then um, you've got the potential for a dynasty. So I guess we see this in some private schools and things as well, don't we? Like it's, it's you know, grandpa went here, so you're, you, you've got automatic acceptance where you actually might not be the right person to be accepted, for example. Okay. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Let's let's get into this. You start with 1 Samuel 8, verse 9, which says, Warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over you over them will claim as his rights. I mean, this was a whole thing when Israel was um wanting a king, Samuel was very clear in explaining that this is what kings are gonna do to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, just a little side note. It was my mistake. Actually, it's it's uh, number nineteen, not number 18. nineteen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I accidentally copied the same. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed that in reading this, but um, the warning came from God uh, through Samuel, but Samuel himself had already created a dynasty, um, and his sons were awful absolutely awful so bad that god said your line in terms of being priests can't continue uh won't continue and so 
you'd have to say that one of the reasons the people were looking for a king perhaps was because of the terrible leadership um, that had been, uh, they had seen, you know, they could see it happening. Here's a dynasty occurring. Look at what his sons are going to be like. Can you imagine what the next generation after them will be like? They were horrible. Um, And so, you know, this is one of the problems with a dynasty is that parents or people who show, you know, family favoritism, even if it's not direct bloodlines, um, that they're blind oftentimes. And, you know, we're the same. If we have children, we're we're, we're often blind to things that others can see. Um, And it's just a very dangerous situation. So, yes, the warning about the king was given to the people. I wonder if perhaps Samuel himself should have listened a little bit more to the warning himself. So, Paul, do you think if if it was different with Samuel's kids and they were God-fearers, do you think that would have... I've I've wondered that. I've wondered that, you know, whether or not um, perhaps that may have changed the demands of the people, you know, Normally, as you know, working um, and advising people that oftentimes leadership and, you know, and I, I, I count, you know, I point the finger at myself as much as anyone else. We could just like families, we can be blind to things, especially within leadership. We often notice the things that the people below us are doing but we often turn a blind eye, sometimes intentionally. You know, we don't want to rock the boat, but sometimes just because we don't want to create dramas, um, even though we know something's wrong, it's quite easy to talk to a subordinate and say, look, I'm not happy with this. But to someone who is a peer, and even more so to someone who's more senior than us, uh, we, we don't. We don't find it easy, and we often let things slide when we shouldn't. Um, and you know, that's what, that's what I think we see here is that this was glaringly obvious to everybody else, but Samuel. Um, Paul, there's a lot in this area, the Johari window and other kind of things that talk about our blind spots. It is part of it too, that, um, we're not willing to change ourselves (laughs) like because it, it has, um, like I know the organization I work for, we just did a huge survey and they found out some stuff of that. What leadership thought was happening was very different. The survey showed very different things and it, it, it came back much more negative than what they were expecting. They thought they were doing okay. And it turned out that there were some huge glaring holes. And so some things have had to change for that. And look, I give them credit that they have taken that on board and brought in some huge dramatic changes as a result. So they were willing to change and probably still some more to go, which is always the case with leaders. But it is hard to look at yourself and say, hey, I have, we all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. Um, and we, we've got to adapt to those and bring about change. Otherwise, we stagnate ourselves. Yeah, we do. And it's it's the hardest area to be genuinely self-reflective and that's why for me you know while a lot of the the these tools that you've mentioned like johari window and others um they 
are good in terms of self-reflection. Um, the reality is we're very easy on ourselves when we self-reflect. Uh, really, the only way to be honest about it is either to allow those who don't have a direct stake in what we're doing make a judgment or we look at you know your your classic gap analysis where you look at what you expect <laughs> and then the gap between that is the reality yes um and usually you can only do that sort of incrementally and over time and you know you might think well look our vision statement or how we've expressed our values or something they're really clear um we have to find out what someone else thinks about that and if they don't think it's clear then no matter how transparent or how uh precise you think your messaging is <laughs> um it's obviously not because it's not you know people are not are not getting it yeah yeah so th those are those are the real challenges when you get in any group that in a sense hears you know they're listening to each other and that i mean that's what organizations do we, we've we've got to do that to lead we've got to listen but you know we really need to get out of the rarefied atmosphere um that we often create for ourselves and actually find out what's happening you know because if samuel had actually been listening to what people were saying um i can't imagine that he would allow that to occur, but perhaps uh, it had gone too far. And, you know, that's often the challenge that we face too. Something's already gone too far and we're just not, we can't, we're not willing to claw it back because it's potentially creates too much, uh, you know, potential conflict or crisis. And yet, you know, that's part of the point of these podcasts and, and, and our talks together is that, um, I suppose we've had the opportunity maybe to face more crises and conflicts in the sort of work that we do than most organizations. And so we don't have that luxury of just saying, well, you know what, if we don't do anything about this, it'll probably work itself out. Um, most cases for us, that's not an option. It can be. Occasionally it'll work itself out. But usually it'll work itself out in the way that we've just been talking here is the people demand they want something else. Um, and so you can't go back. And so you've got to give them what they want. And that was the warning here is just be very aware that what you're asking for has some major ramifications um, for you as a people or as an organization. <laughs> See, Paul, it is, in some circumstances, it's actually easier to choose family members to do that because you know who they are. You've, you've raised them since they were kids. You know what their temperament's like. You know the relationship you have with them. Um, you maybe know that they're not perfect, <laughs> but it's, it's, a easier, it's an easier transition. It is an easier transition, and, and the points that you make are all good ones. Um, the reality is if you look at research is that people who are related to us, um, we would assume 
are the ones who would be closest to us in terms of the willingness to make sacrifices. And the research tells you loud and clear that that is not the case. What tends to happen is that, you know, favoritism tends to emerge uh, occasionally or quite often nepotism um, because then, of course, they employ their favourites, you know. And if you look at, say, for example, uh, David yeah. uh, and then his choice of Solomon. Now, we know that God endorsed that, um, but he did not um, protect them from the uh, consequences of all of David's poor or terrible um, behaviour morally. Uh, but then you look at Solomon's choice of people. Um, they were predominantly his friends. And they were the people that were giving him advice. And then, of course, Solomon's from, from then on in, it was just got worse and worse um, because they allowed people to, um, to, who were their friends to give them advice that they liked to hear. Um, and it didn't solve anything. So that is, it is a difficult one because, like, who is it that you take advice from? Um, those, and, and this is, I guess it can be the danger too in that, um, you know, we, we call it putting yes men on the board, people who agree with you, who don't challenge you, doing that. But actually, like, it, it, it makes for easier meetings. I get that and I understand that. You're not as uncomfortable but it actually does stifle the organization moving forward. Yeah. Well, I love knives. I'm a knife man. <laughs> um, and so if you've got the same iron, uh, you're never going to sharpen a blade. Yes. And, you know, Solomon says that. Uh, and so it, it do just doesn't work. Of course, you don't want someone who's just divisive. Yes. Yes. But you want someone who, and, and this is where we've often found that, you know, it's not so much people. I mean, yes, ultimately you have to make decisions about people, but it's also the types of people. You know, we often find that uh, it's good to have pastoral people, you know, people who are shepherds, farmers, they build um, up on what other people have started, but it's really important to have entrepreneurs, people who can see opportunity in crisis, people who they're the ones that tend to build the foundations and they're, and they're not worried about whether or not they're the ones that have to build the building on it. They're quite happy to build those strong foundations. Um, and it's really important then to have people like you, Wes, um, who are the administrators, the accountants, people who, who look at whether or not we've followed all the rules and done everything that um, we should have done. These, these are all really valuable um, con contributors to, to getting that little bit of friction. If you've got the same, you know, if you get in a church context, you get all pastoral people on the board, of course it makes things easier, <clears throat> but you're not going to get an entrepreneurial perspective. Yeah. You may not get the good bean counter who keeps pointing out that, you know, the bottom line is constantly, you know, being um, mucked around with here and we're in trouble or we're not thinking about saving while we've got, uh, you know, surplus. These are important 
uh, contributors to the process. And if you don't have that mix of people, which is something that, you know, I've been really strict with my teams about, um, we want to get a mix of pastors or um, shepherds, entrepreneurs, as well as pioneering people uh, and, and, and administrative people. Get them get them together. They're not always going to agree with each other and that's fine, but get them together because they help provide those perspectives that those sorts of people provide. You know, Paul, it reminds me that I'm a big one that we actually hear the voice of God in community. So, uh, and it's some of these cases we're talking about here, often like maybe the senior leader is the one that supposedly hears the, from God for it and then everyone else follows and and hey that can work but i also see that the coming together also seems to clarify this is actually what god is saying and then like taking into account there are rules that we need to like the ato is there you know the bank account figures are there but that's also the process that you need to take those things into account that there are some natural things as well as some spiritual things and as you come together and discern the voice of God together, taking all those into account, you tend to get a much more accurate picture of what God is actually saying to you. You do, you do. And I mean, there are some uh, mission organizations, the the one my parents worked with, I'm not sure if they do that now, um, but um, they required in their leadership a consensus yeah. so that they would pray. And if there was not a consensus, then they wouldn't move forward irrespective of whether... <laughs> their leader um, felt, you know, and that happened with, with my dad. He was the leader at the time. He felt that they should go down a certain track in, in terms of preparing lay leaders. Um, and that was not the uh, consensus among the group, despite him being the leader and feeling very strongly that God had told him to do something. And he waited, had, they had to wait for a long time before the, there was consensus. So um, not all organizations work that way, but it's, as you say, it's really important to get the insights of people who see things in a certain way. You know, uh, entrepreneurs just see things in a certain way and uh, they don't see things like a farmer does no. or a shepherd. Yes. Um, but it's important that they are able to have input into that um mix just like it is really important to have a farmer if you want to grow things yes you know plants yeah (laughs) garden nurture uh you probably don't tend to choose a pioneer no that's right that's right paul you make a very strong statement here sacrificial succession cannot endorse dynasties because of the danger family favoritism poses to unselfish motivations for sacrifice there yeah. is no evidence of family dynasties in the early church, neither should there be in ours. Yeah, so perhaps that's a little bit controversial. I mean, some suggest that uh, James was the brother of Jesus, but there are other arguments in, in the literature and in history that, that suggest that he wasn't. Um, if that, I mean, they were definitely related. There was a lot of close relationships. You know, John and Jesus were cousins. Yes. Um, so this happens. It's not. It's not 
assuming that there, there, there are no realities where this happens. But I think it's very interesting where in the case of Jesus, you know, his family were looking for him, his mother and brothers, it says, uh, whether at that point Joseph had died. Um, and he says something very interesting. He says, um, my mother and brothers are those who do the will of God. Um, I think he sensed, and there's a couple of instances, you know, his brothers earlier on said, you know, it's time for you in a sense to come out in your ministry. And he said, no, it's not. You don't tell me when it's my time. I, I, I follow God's time. Um, and it would appear here again that family was coming in to, to try and influence things. Uh, I wonder if the, the mother of Zebedee and the sons of Zebedee, when they were trying to influence and sort of jockey into a position of dominance in the succession, perhaps they are also related somewhere along the line. Because in Eastern cultures, that's very common. If you're related, then families are going to talk and try and get the best deal for their kids. And in all cases, Jesus, you know, in the case of his mother and brothers, he really knocks that on the head, you know, from a from an outsider's perspective, quite rudely, in my view. <laughs> um, and then he deals with this, essentially the same with the sons of Zebedee. So I think it's very, you know, very clear. And and there don't appear to be any examples in the early church of of sort of really strict dynasties. Um one of the reasons being is that Paul is trying to reach the Gentiles. I mean, yeah. he may not have been married and may not have had children. It would appear to be that way, but we don't know that definitively. Um, but the point is he's trying to raise up a next generation of Gentiles. You don't do that by putting your own children and family into positions of, of power uh, as your successors. And yet we see this happen so often and um, wonder whether that's right. So for me to be able to make a sacrificial succession, certainly in the projects, mission projects predominantly and projects where you're transforming nations, um, no, you cannot uh, endorse uh, family dynasties because they by default are not sacrificial. Paul, you're very strict on that you say here to so to avoid the biological conflicts of interest such as dynastic nepotism in most of your projects you say that predecessors are explicitly forbidden from discipling or handling over leadership to successors who are family members oh absolutely and and we were we were so explicit in some of our projects because it was obvious that this sort of favoritism um, was very apparent in the particular culture that we were working with, that, that we also made an explicit rule that family members were not to be employed in any shape or form. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you're not going to achieve the cultural change, the transformation. If you're trying to raise up, you know, uh, another tribe or ethnic group and they know that, well... Um, it's all very well. They um, talk the talk, but when it comes to the crunch, they put their own family members um, in. And there was all sorts of ingenious ways that they tried to do this. And so that's why we were very explicit about it. 
Um, but yeah, I, I just feel that with a few little caveats that we mentioned earlier, you know, where there, you know, for example, the family farm um, might be an example where it's simply not financially viable unless it's a very large operation to employ a manager, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then again, there's a lot of uh, young people um, on the land who don't want to continue yeah. the family farm because it's a very risky business in some cases. Uh, so these principles still apply, I think, in many situations, perhaps where we might initially argue that they don't. And and I'm sure we can all think of, you know, just I just ask everyone, just think for a moment about some of the dynastic relationships that you are aware of and that you perhaps have encountered in your life that made you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you were in one. Well, and it, you see, because there's the talk, like if it's in the family business, for example, well, there's no point me going up higher because I'm not going to get that role because I'm not one of the family, you know, or, or I haven't married into the family, yeah. for example, uh, you're doing that. So it can actually hold others back. Um, and from going that, or it, it's just easier for them to go up somewhere else. But I think the other thing I've noticed too with my own kids is that there are some things that they won't listen to me about. <laughs> and maybe you find that too, Paul. But when they've actually gone out and got jobs or work in other environments and other people have had input in them and raised them up, they have more respect for them sometimes than what they do for their own parents. They do. And I mean, we, we've all been there where you hear something come out of your child's mouth where they're inspired by something that someone says and you sort of think to yourself with a twinge of sadness perhaps you know what I've been saying that to you for years and you never heard me or listened to me but someone else tells you that and um, you know they're the greatest influence in your life <laughs> I like to think that I prepared the way for that to happen. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah. But that, you're right. It, it, um, it's just the reality of those close relationships and why I think, generally speaking, uh, we have to be very cautious about them becoming kind of the default. Yeah. Uh, and that's often the case. Um, in uh, you see it in churches, but you see it in in business organisations as well. And the question must be asked: Is that person the best person for the job, or are they in the job because of being related, um, however that relationship is, to the leaders at the time? You know, and you can look. Uh, down through history, you look at the, the, the kings of Israel just as an example. Um, that, uh, I think, is probably one of the, uh, well, Samuel warned them, and it was God who warned them, uh, and you just have to look and just do a statistical analysis. Um, yeah. So, Paul, I balance that with the, the promise that David had that there will always be someone from his line on the throne. Where does that fit into, <laughs> into this discussion? Well, obviously, 
that was prophetic, like spiritually. Yes. Because Christ in human terms is his successor. Yes. Like genetically. Yes. Um, but like we were talking about at the beginning, the consequences of our actions don't necessarily um, absolve us um, of what occurs down the line. So, yes, uh, his lineage continued, yes. but, boy, they were a bad bunch of people. I think yeah. if you look at the stats, it's around about 70% or, or so or more yeah. of the kings were terrible yeah. or just, you know, really did nothing. Uh, a very small number were good. So it's a pretty strong argument uh, to what God had to say. So, and, and and then you made the point there's no precedent for this uh, in the New Testament? Well, um, it certainly appears that way to me. That's my reading of it, and I've yeah. studied it relatively well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from, from what I picked up, you have, Paul. Um, so really, does that mean that when we're actually looking at succession, that we just put aside um, our, our heirs, like our any family connections, and say, hey, and how far does this extend? Like, does it extend to cousins? Does it extend to... Well, to some extent, of course, it's cultural. You know, um, we don't tend to go beyond our immediate family unit, whereas in other cultures you know, family can be huge. Yeah. You know, it's second, third cousins, uncles and aunts. They all potentially, you know, are given a leg up, if you like, by their association with us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're perhaps less, uh, especially in the West, because we're very individualistic. But what often happens is we're dynastic in terms of what I mentioned earlier, you know, like professions. Yes. Or, well, you know, they can only if they're a Bible school graduate or yes. only if they've done a degree in, you know, this area of university. Um, now that there are cases where, and I mention it in the book, yeah, you can't get away from that because there are specific qualifications that are required to get a job done. As a rule, however, they're not required to necessarily run an organization. I mean, it depends on the size and everything. Yeah. But oftentimes we go for the default option and then create a dynasty that actually is dangerous for the longevity of the organization. If yeah. that's what the organization's meant to do. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the opposite happens. You try and sustain an organization that should have died ages ago because of dynastic relationships yeah. i must hand over to so-and-so whether it's a family member or not to try and sustain something that should have died so that something new could grow out of it well and i do wonder like we've um you know it's very sad that we see a lot of uh suicide particularly in the farming communities and some of that has been like i'm the fourth generation farmer i'm the fifth generation farmer and mind the bunny that um, made this all fall over. And so they, due to the shame of it, they actually take their own lives, which is very, very sad. Whereas perhaps that wasn't the right thing for them to do in the first place. Yeah, no. it's tragic. 
just tragic, um, you know, and you become a victim of circumstance sometimes, you know, you happen to be the, the generation uh, next, if you like, um, and it weighs very heavily that you might be the one to s- literally sell the family farm. And of course, all of the people around you who might say, well, you've done that for selfish reasons. Um, but unfortunately, these are, you know, the great scripture, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it can't multiply. Yeah. And sometimes the opposite needs to happen. We're not, we shouldn't sustain something that should die first yeah. so that it, yeah. it can actually grow up again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- there's a lot of examples of that where stuff has been sustained, I think long past it's used by date. Yeah. Simply because, because yeah, it, this, this is what we do as a family. We've got to do it. Yeah. yeah. And it's remembering family is not always biological family right. can easily become dynastic um we've just got to keep on sustaining this because you know so and so started this and i'm going to keep it on even though i know deep down inside this thing should die (laughs) i i I am just because as you know i've got a very important meeting after this which is actually discussing this very point um, do we keep doing something because that's the way we've already always done it? And that's, um, and surely God can't be saying to do something different. Well, of course he can be saying to do something different, um, but it, it's working through that process too. That's oh, a very challenging thing. Yeah. Just yeah. to recognize that, you know, maybe this thing shouldn't continue. Yeah, that's right. Or, or it's, or part of it needs to die to allow something else to rise up. Yeah. And to do, and it's those that you look at some of the great organisations in the world who've been going hundreds of years. They have pivoted, they have changed, they have moved forward. Whereas, so they say, like a, a very sad example is Kodak. I mean, they had they had everything that they all the patents and everything for the new shift to digital technology, but because they saw all this money coming in from manufacturing film and all that kind of stuff, they couldn't let go of that fact. Yeah, it's very sad to see, and and that's that's what happens, isn't it? We get yeah, that's up. a classic example, um, and yeah, we've seen it so many times when you're when you're in you know crisis and and conflict sort of situations that um, there are things that should have been let go and weren't, yeah. you know, people perhaps that should have been let go and weren't. Um, and those hard decisions need to be made because if you don't, then usually it happens anyway. Yeah. But it doesn't happen. You're like, you can't plan it. And that's really what sacrificial succession is about. It's about um, not be, you can't predict, but it's about anticipating by having, you know, those generations being prepared, yeah, working yeah. together, right through to um, handing over, helping to sustain. It's about creating the the continuity by having the parts. You've got to have parts in place for things to be working. If you don't have the parts in place, then you can't, you know, you can't expect a mechanical process to 
occur if you don't have the three gears working together. And yet so often it's like, oh, well, we'll get the next gear when we need it. Yeah. You got to calibrate things and, yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, Paul, we are out of time, probably gone a bit over long, but your prayer at the end is, Lord, help me not to be dynastic by showing family favoritism in leadership. And that is... um, that is hard. Look, it, it's not easy because uh, we are biased towards our family uh, in doing that. And, you know, we want, but we also want the best for our children as well. Um, and, or, and it's not, as you said, it's not just necessarily those that are uh, uh, blood in our bloodline, but for those that we've worked with to do that, but to actually step outside actually is better for them and it's better for us and it's better for the organization. Yep, it is. <laughs> well, thank you, Paul. We look forward to next week, episode 20. And um, yeah, we just pray that God keeps giving you guys the wisdom that you need as you're preparing for your transition to happen. Amen.